certainly good to see everybody this evening. After you mark your psalm books, I ask you to turn with me to Amos chapter 5 in your Old Testaments this evening. We're going to be looking at that passage primarily. As you're turning there, let me welcome you for being here this evening. Not only the members of this congregation, but also many visitors that we have this evening. It's good to see you, and you certainly are an encouragement to this group as well as me and my family as well. Almost sound like a broken record this week, but it has been a, a just a wonderful week. Every day of this week has uh, been encouraging and enjoyable. Good to be with good brethren as we were again this evening with uh, Gary and Sandra. Enjoyed our company with them and uh, the good food that we had. Uh, I've always appreciated them and looked up to them all my life. Uh, Gary being a good example of, of solid in his convictions and and the sweetness of Sandra, we just appreciate both of them so much and, and continue to. And I know they are such a benefit to this congregation as well. And so we just had a, a good evening this evening, and I hope we'll continue to as we feast upon God's Word. You know, uh, many times you are wanting something, and you might even ask something from someone about it, and uh, you're looking forward to getting it, and you ask for it, and when you finally get it, sometimes you're disappointed. And you think to yourself, this isn't what I asked for. This really wasn't what I was wanting. There once was a man who forgot his wedding anniversary altogether. And the anniversary came and he had not gotten his wife anything for their anniversary. And needless to say, he was in big trouble. She was furious. And through clenched teeth, she told him, the only way that you can make up for this is to get me a good present. Tomorrow morning, I expect a gift in a driveway that goes from zero to 200 in under six seconds. And she stomped off to bed. Well, by the next morning, uh, when she got up, he was already gone to work. But she got up and looked out the window. And she put on her robe and she looked outside and saw that there was a small gift-wrapped package in the middle of the driveway. So she went out there, opening up the box, expecting maybe to find the keys to a brand new sports car. But when she opened the box, she found a brand new bathroom scale with a note attached to it that said zero to 200 in under six seconds. Well, the husband's funeral was scheduled a couple days later, but that gift wasn't what she expected, was it? But she got exactly what you asked for. Be careful what you ask for. In our passage that we're going to look at this evening, God tells the Israelites about the day of the Lord, the coming judgment that was going to be brought against the Israelites. Now, when the Old Testament speaks of the day of the Lord, it's talking about an immediate judgment to come, not necessarily uh, the final judgment, the day of judgment we sometimes refer to it as. But it is a picture of what is to come in the final judgment. And as Amos speaks of the day of the judgment, beginning in verse 16, he says, Therefore, thus saith the Lord God of hosts, the Lord, there is wailing in all the plazas, and in all the streets they say, Alas, alas. They also call the farmer to mourning, and professional mournings to lamentations. And in all the vineyards there is wailing, because I shall pass through the midst of you, says the Lord. In other words, Amos is telling them that God's judgment and devastation is going to be so complete throughout the land that there's going to be, there's going to be sorrow on every street, in the plazas, in the, in the marketplaces. Travelers along the highway, they would just see devastation everywhere that they went. Farmers and vineyard workers would find the burden of sorrow more pressing than working with their crops, and they will lead them, it will lead them to mourn. The only one who's going to profit from this judgment that is coming, he says here, would be the professional mourners. 
You see, back in Bible days, they had professional mourners. Uh, these pro-mourners would go around crying for folks for free. If you died and no one cared, your family could hire these people to come cry at your funeral. And what this verse says is that when the judgment of God comes, the only person that's going to be good news for are for those who make their living for crying, uh, for these professional mourners. It'd be like saying today when God is done that the funeral directors are going to be the only ones who's going to benefit from this. And all of this would happen because Yahweh himself will pass through the land in judgment just as he has been warning them and just as he has predicted and promised here. And yet some of the Israelites seem to be saying, yes, Lord, bring it on. These people need it. And so in verse 18, alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light. There were evidently some who were longing for the day of the Lord. The coming judgment was going to be completely different, though, than what these Israelites were hoping for. They were wishing for a sports car, and God was getting ready to put them on the scales of judgment and give them a harsh picture of reality. And so in that way, God told them, be careful what you ask for. That's what we're going to talk about this evening. Just minutes before, seconds before we started worshiping this evening, my oldest daughter looked over at me and said, what are you preaching on tonight? I said, be careful what you ask for. She says, is that your answer or is that the sermon title? Well, that's the sermon title this evening. And maybe the answer as well. But the same is true for us today. We may look at the terrible world around us. We've been looking at things this week as we looked at on Sunday and we looked at some of the churches that are out there. And we look at them and we think there's things that are wrong with them. And we looked at some of the marriages that we talked about today and how people are distorting the definition of marriage in our society today. And we think the world is just terrible. And we look at these people and we think upon them and we think about how terrible judgment is going to be for them. How long, God, will you allow this to happen? How long will you let this disrespect for your will to continue on? Many times we look forward, though, when we think about judgment of ourselves and we look forward to the events after this life, maybe as this wonderful pie-in-the-sky time. It's like Paul speaks of, and we should think of it this way, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, as he tells us that he is longing for the appearing of Christ. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, as he speaks of hastening the coming of the day of the Lord. And you know, as we think about heaven, it can be a wonderful thing to think about, wonderful beyond comprehension for those who are faithful Christians. But we can't forget that it will be terrible for most people. And maybe this evening, even you. Even you who are deceived into thinking that it might be wonderful. In these verses, God is letting Israel know that they aren't ready for judgment, even though they may be longing for it, wishing for it. My question I want to ask you this evening, you personally, not as a group, but you personally, are you ready for judgment? I want each one of us to long for heaven. I think that's why he tells us about the beautiful pictures about heaven. But we ought to only long for heaven if you're actually on your way there. You need to realize that you're not ready for judgment that's coming if you're not right with God. And you need to be careful what you ask for. And there are reasons why he says you need to be careful what you ask for. As you look at this passage here, and we're going to read down through this passage, but first of all, he says the day of judgment might not be exactly what you expect it to be. Look in verse, look in verse four, uh, 18 of this passage. He says, Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for work, what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light. 
You know, I want you to think about a lot of the songs that we sing. Even this evening we sang, we're marching on to Zion. But what is it that we think about so many times? It seems like a lot of the songs that we sing about are about heaven, and that's good. Won't it be wonderful there? I've got a mansion just over the hilltops. No tears in heaven, no sorrows given. And I would say that the Israel of, of Amos' day would have really enjoyed those songs if they got together to sing. And I could just hear them opening up Amos' preaching service with a rousing chorus, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. And that would be fine. Those are wonderful songs that we need to sing about. But the problem was is they weren't ready for heaven. They thought they desired the day of the Lord, but they didn't really know what it was all about. They didn't have a clue about what they were saying. They had this rosy picture of the judgment day. And my question for each of us this evening is, do we? Many times I think we think of heaven as an escape. We look at the trials and the troubles that we go through here in this life, and we long for a day when we won't have those anymore. No more sickness, no more pain, no more heartache. That's what Revelation chapter 7 pictures heaven as. And that's certainly a wonderful picture of how we ought to view heaven, and that's certainly how we ought to look forward to it, but only if you're saved, only if you're right with God, only if you're ready to meet Him in judgment this very evening. And unless Jesus is your Lord and Master, then you're not ready. Israel, at this point, when Amos was prophesying, was not ready. Were they God's chosen people? They certainly were. Had He cared for them and protected them and given them every opportunity to repent? Had He not sent many prophets to them? He certainly did. But did they repent? No. But yet they were still longing for the sweet by and by. They're still looking for a heavenly escape from their current troubles. But what did the Lord tell them? Let's look as we continue reading on here in verse 19. It's as when a man flees from a lion and a bear meets him, or he goes home and leans his hand against the wall and a snake bites him, Will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light, even gloom with no brightness in it? He said to them, escaping the troubles of this world would be like you're running to get away from a lion. And as you're running away, all of a sudden you run into this bear. And so you have to run the other direction. And you're running away from bear and you finally get home and you lean up against the wall just to relax for a minute. As you're catching your breath, all of a sudden a rattlesnake bites you. I'm telling you, that's a bad day when that happens, isn't it? you, you got to hate it when that happens, but you know you're having a bad day when all the light you've been looking forward to turns into darkness. And he says, if you have any light at all, you ought not to be because it's really darkness for you. It's going to be a terrible day if you're expecting all the heavenly bliss that's described within the Bible, and yet instead you receive wrath and judgment. You know, the fact is, is that many people think that they're going to heaven but they're as lost as can be. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus describes these at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. In verse 21, he says, Not everyone who says unto me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father and who is in heaven. It's not going to be everyone who just simply calls Jesus their Lord. It's not going to be those who just simply say that, that Jesus is their Savior, that they're their Master, but it's only the ones who've done what God has told them to do. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. There are going to be a lot of people on the day of judgment, evidently, as he pictures here, who will say, look at all the great things that I've done for you, Lord. Look at how I've lived my life. 
Look at uh, the mission trips that we've done and look at all these things. Look at all the money that I've given to my church. And he says, that's not what it's all about. It's about submitting yourself and following after me. You know, there are those who have never done what the Lord has told them to do, to become a Christian, to hear and understand God's word and to completely submit to it by changing their lives. The Bible calls it repentance and saying, I'm not going to follow myself anymore. I'm going to follow after the will of the Lord. And then to confess their faith in Jesus Christ, and then to be baptized. Not just for any reason, not to join a church or, or to make an outward sign of an inward confession or faith, but instead for the very purpose of having their sins washed away. To be saved, as Mark 16 and verse 16 says, for the forgiveness or remission of sins, as Acts 2 and verse 38 says. To have your sins washed away, as Acts 22 tells us in verse 16. That is the purpose of baptism. And yet there are those who have never done those things. There are those who said, Lord, Lord, did I not say the sinner's prayer? Who thought maybe that grace would cover them? Who thought maybe that just simply being good would be good enough? You know, I've talked with several people before who talk about how bad the world is. I'm talking about out in the world. And they talk about how great it will be for them when they get to heaven. But, you know, from what I know of them, they don't care about doing what is right. Or if they do, they're deceived into thinking that they already are all right. You ever been to a denominational funeral where the deceased was pictured going to hell? It just doesn't happen. Uh, You know, always you hear things like he's in a better place. I tell you, my earthly father passed away just a few months ago. And of what I know of my earthly father, he was the furthest thing from being right with God. And yet to sit at the funeral and hear a preacher who had never seen him before say, everything's okay now. He's all right. He's in a better place. Imagine how that makes God feel. To know here's a person who is spitting in the face of God. And yet, he has rejected me. And you think he's okay. And you're giving all this peace to other people in the same way. We ought not to live with a false standard of peace. Instead, the only way that we can know we are right with God is by doing what he has told us within God's word. And if you've not submitted your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no escape. No matter how bad things get for you here, they are eternally better than they will be if you're not right with God. For you, the day of judgment will be eternally awful. Whether that day comes at your death or at the second coming of Christ, it won't be what you expect. But second of all, he says, be careful what you ask for because you may not be as ready for the day of the Lord as you think that you are. You know, there are some people, though, we have to understand, who have done what they ought to do in order to be saved. I know initially, at least, they had a right relationship with God, that they were baptized and they had repented of their sins. But the problem was, is they've got wet, but they never developed that relationship. That relationship and that closeness to the Lord never grew. And they got caught up into deceiving themselves into thinking they're right with God in this pseudo-relationship that they have with Him. And that seems to be what was happening here in this passage. Again, looking at verse 21, he says, I hate... I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlands. Take away from me the noise of your songs. 
I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. You know, what was Israel doing wrong here? Were, were they supposed to have these feast days? Well, yeah, the law of Moses said that. Were they supposed to have these solemn assemblies that he speaks of in this passage? Well, yeah, they were. Were they supposed to have burnt offerings and grain offerings and even these peace offerings? Absolutely they were. So what's the problem? The problem was is that their heart was not right with God. They're just going through the motions. We would say today that they're just playing church. He says they're just making a bunch of noise. Their attitude was like many people today. God, I'm a pretty good old boy. I don't drink, smoke, or chew or girl with the girls that do. I go to church. I give my offering. I take of the Lord's Supper every first day of the week. I sing praises and I do so without instruments. I'm at every single Bible study. I'm at every single gospel meeting. I'm always at worship service. I help my neighbor out when I can. I'm all right, right? Well, there was a man like this, actually, that Jesus met in Mark chapter 10, who was known as a rich young ruler that teaches us the lesson that even a spiritually minded and intelligent man may misapprehend his spiritual situation. In Mark chapter 10, we read about in verse 17 that Jesus was setting out on a journey and this man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And what a wonderful question. Isn't that what we want? Isn't that what we're trying to avoid judgment and have eternal life? That's what we're speaking about this very evening. And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He speaks of many of the last of the Ten Commandments, except for, interestingly, he leaves off, Thou shalt not covet, which is really this man's heart problem that we get, get into here. He says to him, Teacher, I've kept all these things from my, from my youth up. And he goes on to say in verse 21, looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him. He felt compassion. And he said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all that you possess and give to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. But at these words, he fell on his face, his, or rather his face fell and he went and he grieved for he was one who owned much property. I mean, here is a young ruler who is an admirable young man. I mean, he had kept all of these commandments from his youth. He, he did almost everything right. He had risen to be a ruler. We don't know what kind of ruler, but it's possible that he was ruler of a synagogue with, when many of in his situation would have turned to worldly things with certainly all the wealth around him. He had come to, to Jesus for the finishing touches. He says, Jesus, what do I need? What, what do I, is there anything alive? Almost going to him, seeing, just making sure that everything is all right in his life because he's, he's sure that he is. Hardly realizing that the entire structure of his spirituality needed to be torn down and built on another foundation. Jesus is the cornerstone and not our own self-confidence, our own good works. And so, He's like the man, this rich young ruler, who, who goes to the doctor complaining of a slight cough and he is diagnosed with a fatal heart condition. He'd never realized how much he loved his money until he was forced at this moment to choose between it and his eternal soul. He never dreamt that he was ungodly until God required for him to choose. And he chose his few acres of land and a few talents of gold instead of his treasure in heaven. I think the rich young ruler did all the right things, but he didn't have the right heart. 
He thought he was ready for judgment, but he wasn't. And going back to the book of Amos here, all these good things that the Israelites were doing, he says this is a stench in the nostrils of God. They're all just noise. And God says he would not tolerate self-righteousness. God will not tolerate our songs if we're still sitting on the throne of our own hearts. We may sing, Jesus is my king, but if we're acting like we are the king of our lives, it's just noise to the Lord. Our heart isn't right. You see, it's not just the things that you do that make you right for the judgment day. And I think that's, that's where Israel got so confused. They thought that they could get away with just their righteousness. And that's a sort of pride there. It's not just what you do that makes you ready for the day of the Lord. It's where your heart is also. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 15 and verse 8, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In John chapter 4 and verse 24, he tells us that God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And I think many times we get the truth part down, don't we? We know what to do, but is our heart, is our spirit in it? You can have the most self-righteous, legalistic checklist of anybody here and be no better off than the rich young ruler. As a matter of fact, you can be worse off than them. At least he worked away, walked away rather sad, knowing that he was not right anymore. But when he walked away, he knew he wasn't ready for the day of the Lord. The Bible says it grieved him. But how many of us mark off our self-righteous checklist and walk away thinking that we are somebody? Well, I worship today. I took the Lord's Supper correctly today. I didn't sing with instruments today. I, we didn't send our treasury to any orphan home or, or an institution. You know, that's what Israel did. And God despised it. They thought that they were ready for the day of the Lord because of the things they were doing. Be careful what you ask for. But God knew that they weren't ready because they weren't humble. They weren't fully trusting in Him and His righteousness. They weren't as ready for the day of the Lord as they thought they were. And my warning for you this evening is to examine your heart and be careful of what you ask for in terms of judgment. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, the Hebrew writer says, For the Word of God is living and it is active and is sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Let the Word of God penetrate you and pierce you. As it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, and verse 5, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test? Each one of us need to look deeply inside of ourselves and make sure that we are doing what we're doing out of a steadfast love for the Lord, that we are submitting ourselves, our hearts, our souls, our whole being over to the Lord and following Him to make sure that we are right with Him through and through. The third thing that Amos points out here as he talks about this coming day of judgment is that your memory might not be as good as you think it is. You know, I have to admit that I have a terrible long-term memory. Many times as uh, Alina and I are thinking back on things and talking about things, she's talking about things that I have no clue what she is talking about. and It doesn't even sound familiar at all to me. But she says, yeah, you remember this? And as she starts talking about, oh, yeah, I remember that. They say as you get older, your memory is the first thing to go. For the life of me, I can't think of what the second thing is. But anyway, memory is a, is a pretty funny thing, isn't it? One, one thing about our memory, though, is that it tends to soften the past. And we tend to look back on the past with rose-tinted glasses. 
Every generation looks back of when they were younger or maybe their parents' generation as the good old days. You, you long to go back sometimes for that uh, leave it to beaver days or maybe those uh, little house on the prairie days or whatever it may be. And you think, wow, it would just be so great to live back then. But, you know, Solomon warns about that in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 10. He says, don't say, uh, why is it that you, the former days are better than these? For it's not from wisdom that you ask about about this. I don't know why we do that, but we tend to look back on the old days and as if they were better in some way, but they may not have been. It just may be that our memory is not as good as we think it is. And I think that's what even went on in Amos' day with the Israelites. Reading on now in verse 24, he says this, But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you present me with sacrifices and grain offerings in the wilderness for 40 years, O house of Israel? You also carried along Sitkath and your king Kidion, your images, the star of your gods, which you made for yourselves. In verse 25, God asked the Israelites here a rhetorical question. He asked them about their good old days, their past, about how they used to obey him completely back in the wilderness how they did all the sacrifices and offerings that they were supposed to back then. And you can just about picture them sitting on a front porch in a glider talking about how good things were back then, how they used to obey God back then like they were supposed to. Not like this crazy generation. What's wrong with crazy kids this day? Well, what was wrong with them was them. The first thing that was wrong was their memories. When God asked that rhetorical question, He knew the answer. He knew that they didn't offer sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness. He knew that they had disobeyed from the beginning. And that's really what His point is, is that Israel has always been a sinful people. From the very moment that God delivered them up out of Egypt, they were disobedient. They're complaining about water. In fact, Moses is up on the mountain getting the law of Moses, and they're at the bottom of the mountain worshiping an idol that they had created. And that's what caused the second thing that they did wrong. The second thing wrong was their example. From the time that they had left Egypt, each generation provided a bad example for the following generation to follow. And when each subsequent generation ended up following that example, things got worse. I think it's just like today. You know, we look around us and we see young people who uh, they are pin-cushioned, tattooed faces of today. Where do they come from? Well, we may not want to admit it, but they came from the poor example of the previous generation. And the baby booners, materialistic, self-centered, wasteful generation came from the poor example of my grandparents' generation. And my grandparents' prideful, workaholic, get-ahead-at-all-cost generation came from their parents' generation. And on and on it goes until you go all the way back to the fall in the Garden of Eden. And so today, when we look at an 18-year-old who has more holes in his body than a colander, what do we say? We ought to say, as he says in verse 24, judgment has run down like waters. They are bearing the fruit of the gods of the previous generation that they made to them. But that's not how we remember it. We remember the past as the good old days. And Israel wasn't remembering their past right. They remember the good old days. Instead of repenting of their real past, they had glorified in an imaginary one. And in the day of the Lord, God would judge them for that. He would judge them because they never did get it right. They never did get it right. More importantly, they never did repent of it. 
What about us? Could it be that we've been lulled into thinking that we're all right with the way that we're living now because this is the way that I've always lived? This is the way that I've always served the Lord, even from when I was a young kid. Could it be that we've been lulled into thinking that we're all right because the way that we're living now is the way that our parents lived and previous generations lived and served the Lord? Could it be that we deserve judgment simply because we're trusting the way that things have always been? Never examining the scriptures to see if the way that I live and the way that previous generations live is actually acceptable to God. You know, we need to be thankful for, and we talked about this Sunday morning, thankful for the, the past generations and the examples that they have set for us in paving the way and showing us the way, the, uh, the truth, and holding to the old paths. But we've got to make sure that those old paths are not made man-made man paths, but instead are marked by the Scriptures. Let's not just do something the way, do something because it's the way that we've always done it. You know, it's all right to criticize the immorality that we see around us in today's world. But first, take a look at yourself and make sure that your standard of living is actually based upon God's Word and not what you think is God's Word. The good old days may not have been as good as you think. But fourthly, finally, this evening, you also have to keep in mind that sometimes God sends temporal judgments in order to wake us up. Look here in verse 27. Therefore, he says, I will make you go into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. He's speaking of captivity. And in just 30 years after Amos's words, they would go into Assyrian captivity. You know, it's often when we're going through rough times in life that we long for the next life the most. And you know what? I think that's the way it's supposed to be. The things, the trials, the difficulties that we go through in this life, they make us long for heaven. If uh, Someone has said if we did not have these trials, we may not long for heaven as much as we, we ought to. And during these times, we may think, Lord, come quickly. But again, we need to be careful what we ask for. Those trials may be there for your good in order to prepare you for the next life. Let me put it in terms of a parent-child relationship. As parents, we try to discipline our children in order to raise them upright so they might be the people God would have them to be. But in order to do that, we may have to administer some discipline to them. Well, God does the same thing. In Hebrews chapter 12, He allows us to go through some trials. He allows us to go through some difficulties that the early Jewish Christians were even going through in order to make them stronger and better people. And He, refers, and he compares it to the discipline that a father gives his children. He says in verse 5, And have you forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And that's what God did with Israel. He told them that he's going to send them away into captivity. And later on in the Old Testament, they saw that captivity as a reality. They were sent into captivity for two reasons. Number one, to punish the nation for breaking their covenant with God. But number two, also to preserve a remnant, to purify a people, to make them better. 
And the same was not only of the northern ten tribes, but later on also with the southern tribe of Judah as well. When people came out of captivity, they for the most part were more rededicated to the Lord. When you read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, the post-exilic people were more dedicated to serving the Lord now that their nation had been punished. And that helped the generation of people face their Lord in judgment. You might say that the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities were divine spankings, I guess you might say. Spankings that no doubt hurt God more than it hurt His children. Spankings that were designed as part of God's grace. It was God's grace extended to cause His people to return and to, uh, to repent. And, and, and we can easily through, look through history and we can see God's spanking of the Israelites. Do you think America is ever being spanked, our country? Was the Civil War a spanking? It may, may have been because we see that it, it, revival followed after it in some ways. Some, there were some people limited time were more excited about things of, of the Lord. Was the Great Depression a spanking? If so, it, it may have worked because there was somewhat a revival also. Were the two world wars spankings? Maybe. What about in our modern era? What about 9-11? Was it something to open up our eyes as a country to get us to turn back to the Lord? It worked for a very, very short time. But as we see more and more of these spankings going on, we see that they last shorter and shorter period of time. Hurricane Katrina. And what about these shootings that happen within schools and the economic crisis? Are we as Americans responding to these things? It just seems to me that each time we are less and less so. But what about divine discipline on a more personal level, in your own personal life? What are these things designed to do? You know, as the Hebrew writer goes on to say in verse 10 of this particular passage, For they disciplined us for a short time, speaking of the earthly fathers, as seemed best to them. But He, God, disciplines us for a good that we may share His holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Whenever a child is going through any type of discipline, corrective discipline, it's not a pleasant thing. But at the end, it makes him better, even though he doesn't realize it at the time. But as God allows us to have these trials in our life, maybe they are there for our discipline to, to grow in the Lord. Well, how have you responded to those trials and difficulties? Have you responded like the rebellious child who blamed it on everyone else and everything else? Or have you repented? The illustration is often given about clay and butter that they are soft things, but when they're put out in the sun, one thing that does to the butter is it makes it softer. To the clay, it makes it harder. The same sun is shining down upon it. The same trials, but two different results. The question is, are you clay or are you butter? God disciplines us now for a reason. He allows for bad things to happen within our life, not because He's mean, not because He's out of control and He loses His head. It's not because He doesn't like us. In fact, He loves us. And He does it so that we will turn closer to Him, more holy and complete. Are you responding by doing everything we can while we still have this life before we meet Him in the day of judgment? Or on the day of judgment, are we going to have an answer for our lack of response? We have to be careful what we ask for. Be careful about asking that this life be over and you face judgment because you may not be ready. God's discipline may not have had its full 
desired effect yet upon your life. So what does all this add up to? The day of judgment might not be what you expect. You might not be as ready for it as you think. Your memory may not be as good as you thought it was. And you might be responding to the trials in your life the way that God wouldn't want you to, that you need to respond in a different way. You know, that all sounds pretty negative, doesn't it? Well, it is. And it's because that's the message that God had to give to the Israelites. It's not always a positive message, is it? They had continually rejected His grace and they had refused to listen to His prophetic warnings for Him. They wanted to trust in themselves and not trust in God. They wanted to rely on what they could do and not what God could do for them. And because of that, they were crazy to desire the day of the Lord. They weren't ready for it. They weren't ready to meet their judge. And the question I want to leave you with this evening is, are you? You know, when the prophet Joel talks about the great day of the Lord, he calls it the great and terrible day of the Lord. I want you to think about those two words, great and terrible. It's terrible for those who aren't ready. There's a sad day coming. There's a sad day coming by and by. When the sinner shall hear his depart, I know you not. Are you ready for that day to come? But you know, it's not such a sad day for those who are prepared. I wish that we could all say the same thing at the end of our lives that the Apostle Paul said at the end of his. He said, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. Does that describe you? That you've fought the good fight, you've kept the faith, and now you're looking forward to the Lord coming back, that that'll be a wonderful thing? Or like Peter describes in 2 Peter 3 and verse 11, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way as he describes the end of the world, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the God, on which uh, account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. Or how about John in the book of Revelation, Revelation 22 and verse 20, as he brings really the whole Bible to a close. He who testifies of these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. God is coming quickly. Jesus is coming back quickly in judgment. And he says, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. You know, there is a bright day coming. A bright day coming. There's a bright day coming by and by. But its brightness will only come to them that love the Lord. Are you ready for that day to come? This evening, are you ready? Are you truly ready? I don't want you to just think you're ready. I want you to have the assurance that you're ready because you know in in God's Word that you have done what God has told you to do. Have you done what we've talked about this evening? If you've never come to Christ, have you repented of your sins? Have you been baptized to have your sins washed away? Maybe at some time in the past you thought that you had become a child of God. You thought you had done, you did what someone had told you to do, what someone else told you to do. But it wasn't what God's Word said. We encourage you to make your life right with God. Just don't think you're ready. Know you're ready by doing what He's told you to do. Maybe you've been a child of God for some time, but you've not been living the way that you ought to. Maybe you have your perfect checklist that you go through, but your heart just isn't right with God. 
Make your heart right with God this very evening. Repent of those things. Maybe there is some blatant sin in your life that you're doing that you know you ought not to be doing. We encourage you to repent of those things. If it's of a private nature, make it right with God privately. But if it's of a public nature that this congregation needs to know of so we can forgive you, why don't you let that be known this evening so that we can be praying for you as well. Maybe it's just a simple burden that you've had, a trial that you're going through that we can help you with, that we can bear that burden with you, that anxiety that you might have. We encourage you to lay that upon your, your brethren so that we, can, that we can lift you up and we can encourage you. Whatever the need may be this evening, why don't you come forward now as we stand and as we sing.